So um, we're taking a, the next step in our three-part series of the Christ of Christmas. Um, we started this uh, journey in John chapter 1, verse 14. Um, and right, traditionally what we're doing right now is walking through the book of John and God in his um, providence brought us to John chapter 1, verse 14 as we um, entered into December. Um, and it's an incredible verse and it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Um, an incredible verse that is packed with all types of beauties, but perhaps the most unique one is the fact that the word would become flesh. Um, that the incarnate, that, that the God who was in the beginning, the God who is life, the God who is light, um, that he would actually take on flesh. And the word that we see in John chapter 1 verse 14 is and tabernacle among us, that he would dwell with us. I mean, just consider the magnitude of the fact that the God who had once dwelt in perfect unity in the, in the splendor of heaven would take the um, would take the the opportunity. He's not obliged to do this. He does so of one reason and one reason only, flowing from love. And he comes and he dwells among us. And then as we kind of launched from there, we looked at Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, a verse that is just, um, just, just perhaps one of the most comforting verses we consider the season of Christmas, um, an angel approaches Joseph and says, um, uh, take Mary to be your wife, And this one who is coming, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. And so last week we looked at the Old Testament, looking very clearly at the lineage of the Christ that would come and seeing who he would be. Ultimately, we saw that he would be one that came from the lineage of Abraham. Not only that, but he would be... He would come from Judah, and he would be that lion of Judah that we had been looking forward to, whose scepter would never pass from him. That he would be one that would come through the line of David, that he would sit on David's throne forever. That he would be our better prophet, priest, and king. And this morning, as we kind of continue this journey, we find ourselves in the very familiar passage of Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is... Um, I mean, for lack of better terms, the, the keynote passage on a Christmas uh, sermon or service. Now, to be real honest, we can celebrate the incarnation from various passages throughout the scripture, but it, I think it would do us well to look at the narrative for us to actually understand the Christ who came. And it is an interesting thing that as we walk through John chapter 1, we find ourselves here in Luke chapter 2, the culmination of everything that we've discussed. And it's, um, it's almost interesting that it seems like the first stint of Mercy Hill's life is wrapped around what we would call Christology, the study of Jesus. Um, and that makes perfect sense to me. I can think of no better place to start. But so as we come to Luke chapter 2, I'm going to go ahead and lay a couple things out for you as we begin. First and foremost, this is a familiar passage. I would argue that most, most of you have heard this read at least once a year throughout the vast majority of your lives. Perhaps not, but it's so familiar we even see it mentioned, um, quoted from start to end on um, the, the Peanuts Christmas Charlie Brown's Christmas. I mean, I can't even believe they still allow this on TV. But I mean, I mean this, is, this is in our culture so deeply that I think there are times that we approach it and we really do stop. And, we, and there is an all, there's this unique thing as we read this that all tends to strike. And what I hope will happen this morning is just that. What I hope will happen this morning is simply as we leave here, as we go about um, the craziness that will be the next 48 hours, I would assume for all of us that we are simply awestruck the entire time. I mean, 
gifts will come. You'll celebrate with your family. And those are all wonderful things. But my prayer is that this Christmas season and far past it, that we would stand in awe of the Christ who would come and dwell among us, tabernacle with us for a time. And so if you would, in the honor of the reading of God's word, let's stand and read Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. We're going to read through the entire passage. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was, was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own home. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because, it, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach this story of Christmas, as we um, look at how the word became flesh, as you look at the story that brought it about that, that there would be all of these things to transpire to make sure your perfect plan played out exactly as you, as you had sovereignly decreed. And so, Father, as we approach um, your word this morning, once again, I come confessing to you the sheer authority and power of your word and resting very comfortably in it. And Lord, my prayer is that as we leave here, we would simply be awestruck by the beauty of Christ and his coming, the love of God and the humility displayed in the incarnation that we might simply walk away in awe and in praise of you. It is in the name of Christ and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to go ahead and confess to you one thing real quickly. What we're going to do this morning um, is we're going to, uh, I'm going to attempt, so attempt, to essentially preach through this passage parallel with another. Um, I'm doing that for two reasons. Number one, I think it fits very clearly into what we're discussing, but also my hope is maybe to display to you a good way to do hermeneutics, to how we can study the Bible effectively by taking the entire counsel of God's Word and applying it to other passages. And so the way that we're going to do that is we're going to walk through uh, this passage in Luke chapter 2, and we're also going to walk through a passage that I believe is incredibly parallel in Philippians chapter 2. Now, Philippians chapter 2 is perhaps, um, it's a essentially a hymn. Um, It's a hymn that the early church would have sang concerning Christ. It is an incredible picture of exactly who he is, and it is in reference to two things. 
Now, I'm going to say one word here that might spark a little frustration in you, but let me define it before you throw something at me. First of all, it's going to talk about his incarnation, his, what we would call his condescension, that Christ, as he condescends to man. Now, first of all, I know that condescend has a bad connotation. Immediately you think that it's God looking at you and talking down to you or saying things that are mean or, or whatever that may be. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about it in its actual denotation, what it actually means. It is the idea of one stooping down to your level. Now, friends, if you're upset that God had to condescend to you, you have too high of a view of yourself. Um, it is necessary that he must condescend to you. Now, I want to point out this, and I'm, I'm going to hit this a little bit later, but friends, if the angels had not been told by the angel, if the shepherds have not been told by the angels, they would have never known that Christ had come. It's necessary that the God of creation condescends to us so that we can actually know him. And so when I say that word, nobody get upset. So first of all, we're going to discuss his, his, uh, his words that are failing me, condescension. And then secondly, we're going to discuss, this is the one you're going to be upset with me about, his humiliation. Now, I know that that might strike you a little bit difficult. And the reason we're going to talk about that is because we look at the incarnation and we look at the crucifixion and we always, for some reason, see them with these rose-shaded glasses And I really want to throw those away this morning. I want you to understand that as we look at those things, we we, we rob the cross of its glory when when we remove from it the fact that Christ condescended that he might be humiliated, the God of life dying. And so we're going to talk about those two things. Now, I know those are two major thoughts, but we're going to go ahead and give you the sermon in a sentence to kind of give you, if you walk away with anything, you'll walk away with this one sentence. First of all, The condescension of Christ reveals the love of God and the humility of Christ for which God is to be adored and praised. Let me repeat that. The condescension of Christ, his coming to man, reveals the love of God, the humility of Christ, for which God is to be adored and praised. That at the end of the day, when we consider Christmas, when we consider the condescension of Christ, immediately we should think about two things. First, we should think about the love of God, for apart from the love of God, the condescension would have never happened. Secondly, we consider the fact that it is in the humility of Christ that he completely and totally of his own will. Friends, God is the only truly free creature. He's not a creature, forgive me. The only free being. He can actually make whatever decision he wants. And so when he says, I'm going to condescend to man, he did this freely. And so when he condescends, it is sheerly of his love and of his humility that he would come and that he would dwell among us. And friends, if this does not provoke you to adoration and praise, I simply do not know what will. And so that's the sermon in a sense. Everything we're going to look at is going to essentially cover these ideas. So before we go any further, I would like to read to you the parallel passage that we will walk through. That is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Now, I would encourage you that if you're using a Bible, go ahead and maybe have your hand in both places because we're going to kind of jump back and forth. It's two passages, so the good news is I'm not taking you through 10 like last week. Um, So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to listen to this, all right, because we're going to break this down, but I want you to hear the weight of these words. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you see kind of this idea of his condescension. It's him taking on the form of a servant. Now let's remember who this is before we go any further here. We're not talking about a creature condescending. We're not talking about an angel condescending. Now that would be uh, an interesting thing, sure. But really, it's a creature. It doesn't matter how low the creature goes, they're still a creature. But for the God of creation to condescend to man, to essentially take on human form, to become in the form of a servant. I mean, can you consider even the fact that the one who is sovereign over everything takes on the title servant? And we see this very clearly when Jesus makes reference to the fact that he came not to be served, but to serve. I mean, just just consider those, consider those things as we walk through this passage in light of what we see in Philippians chapter 2. So um, I'm going to give you a couple of things for, I believe, to cover just kind of the idea of this condescension. So first off, um, the only begotten becomes the son of peasants. Now, um, we, we, this is that same basic thing where we have rosy glasses in regard to Joseph and Mary, and we should honor them. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying here. Now, to be real honest, as we look at Mary and we look at Joseph, I'll be honest, if I could ask for anything more in the scriptures, I would just really, really want to know everything there is to know about Joseph. I mean, I'm like, give me the whole biography. I can't even fathom the weight that was placed on him in Matthew 121, where this angel comes and says, you're going to be essentially the stepfather, adoptive father of the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine being told something like that? I would jump off a cliff. I mean, just, I mean, just fear and trembling to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up. And yet God looks at him and says, you're the one. And it's an incredible thing, but, but even then we're, we, 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 we exalt him because yes, he's of the lineage of David, but friends, he's a carpenter. He's a carpenter. He's not some great king. He's not this incredible, like, crazy lineage of wealth and, and, and prosperity that you would assume a king would be born into. I mean, we make reference to Christ being of the lineage of David. Everything that was David's is ultimately due him. That means that all of the riches of Solomon would be due Christ. They are his inheritance first and foremost. And so when you consider the fact that he was born into a family of peasants, the only begotten, the monogenes of God is born to Two people, one a very, very young woman and the other one simply a carpenter. And I want to point out a couple of things in regard to this. First, in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 it says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, I know that perhaps you may not see a great deal of weight in there, but I want you to understand that these peasants were under authority. Just the sheer word that I find in verse 2, in those days a decree went out. How laughable. Have you ever considered just how incredibly laughable it is that a governor, he's not even that high up in the government, he's a big deal, but he's not that big of a deal. It's not as though he's Caesar. A decree went out, and the birth parents of Jesus have to submit to that decree. They are ultimately bringing into the world the one who has decreed absolutely everything. He has decreed creation into existence. He has looked at nothing and said, exist, and it does it. He has made sure that absolutely every means will result in the appropriate end. 
that great decree. He is the one that decrees each and everything. Not only that, but it is this one that will be born of Mary that has actually given this, this, this governor his position. Apart from him, apart from God allowing this man to be the governor, he would simply not be here. But what we find then is that when Jesus is born, he's born to parents who are resting under the, the, the authority of a government that can even be decreed. The one who gives each and every single decree is subject to them. You consider the weight of that. The sovereign of creation, the one who possesses absolutely all authority, allows himself to enter into this world. This is the level of condescension that he would be subject to the decrees of men. That's the type of parents he was born to. Parents who would, by necessity, have to oblige. And I mean, can you can even consider the fact that if I was Joseph in this particular position, I would, I would almost try to think, okay, how can I get out of this? I mean, I've got a, a nine-month, eight-month pregnant um, uh, future spouse here, and if there's, any, if there's ever a time to disobey a decree, it's now, Right? But instead, you see them bow very faithfully to that decree. So you see the only begotten, the one who has absolute authority over absolutely everything, comes subject to the decrees of men. And, and, and you would imagine the wealth that you would think the king would be brought into, this great king of kings and lord of lords. And, and each and every one of these points that we're going to look at this morning, the purpose, they, they have one singular purpose. It's not to herald his coming. It's not to make much of his coming. It's to make much of his condescension. Because we'll see his glory. We'll see that very clearly. That second coming, it will be nothing like the first. Each and every soul will know it. They will see it and every knee will bow to the glory of the Father. They will profess Christ as Lord. But in his first coming, the thing that he, the, 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 the sovereign of creation may, wants to make abundantly clear is see how low I will go to rescue and redeem that which is lost. He comes to peasants. The only begotten, the monogenes, comes to peasants. Secondly, the glory of heaven exchanged for a manger. Luke chapter 2 verse 7 says this, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I have to stop for a minute because I feel like we probably don't even understand the full weight of the first statement here, that it is the glory of heaven exchanged for a manger. Let's consider for a moment the glory of heaven. Isaiah chapter 6 gives us us an interesting view. It is a place of splendor, of majesty, a place that to even walk in would be incredibly overwhelming for us. But the beauty of it is not so much in its substance and what um, it's made up of, but the beauty is in who is there. I mean, can you consider for just a moment, for eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have lived in perfect harmony with one another. They have dwelt in each other's presence to their delight. Because within the Trinity, we have this perfect fellowship. They lived in perfect love. And here we have this moment of uh, this great exchange where Christ, in the midst of, of saying, I'm going to condescend to them, I'm going to take on the form of a servant. You see this, this relationship, not broken, not marred, but just for a moment. You see him step into human time to exchange all the glories, all the beauties, all the perfections, all the incredible. I mean, there's, there's nothing there that would, that would rob it of its glory, of its splendor. It's hard to even describe to you. And he would then exchange that to be born of a woman. Let's just stop right there for a minute and consider that the creator of all things would pass through his own creature to be birthed here. Now, perhaps that's a bit graphic, but just consider that the God who knits together children in the womb, would he himself be knit together in a womb? 
that he would exchange the glory of heaven. And then not only to be born in a place of splendor, but to ultimately be born in a feeding trough. And, and once again, when I consider the, the ways that we have all of these different things in our culture, we have these different manger sets, these different um, nativity sets laid out, and they're all so beautiful. I mean, each and every one of them are. I mean, they're, they're incredible. And I've seen some that are just like, man, you just look at them and they're just, I mean, overladen with gold. I've seen some with jewels in them. That is just a stunning thing to look at, craftsmanship. But friends, we have have made this cleaner than it actually is. It is not a clean thing that we find Christ being born into. I mean, you would think that the God of creation would make sure that there was at least room in the end, wouldn't you? That the sovereign God could certainly make room. But he didn't. Have you considered that? It was not as though it was like they were taken by surprise here. It wasn't like uh, Joseph and Mary stroll up and, and, and they're like, oh, well, God's certainly going to open up an, a room in the end for them. Was God able to do that? Absolutely he was. Why then would he not? Have you considered? I mean, these things are orchestrated. It's not like this is like plan B here. When everything went awry, God's plan fell apart. That's not the case here. Each and every one of these things points to how low he indeed did come to rescue and redeem for himself a people. And so as Jesus is birthed into this world, as he's laid in a feeding trough, he is surrounded by camels and donkeys in a barn. It is not clean. It is not beautiful. It is not lovely. The only splendor that is there is the incarnate God laying there. But his level of condescension is so great That to illustrate it, God orchestrated this incredible picture for us to say, not even room in an inn, not even the most basic of necessities were provided. They were ultimately a sign of his entire life, that that the, the fact that he would be born in a manger in a feeding trough gives light to the fact that he would look at many who'd say, I want to follow you. And he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This was not something new to him as he makes that profession to those that long to follow him. Instead, it was something that he was born into. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It is not for rest that he came. It is not for rest that he came. He exchanged the glory of heaven and the splendor of it that he might come and dwell with us amidst our filth. Now, and that's the incredible thing as you consider this. I I mean, I can't even imagine or even begin to fathom what it would be like to be a perfect, sinless, spotless man, true man, true God, dwelling amidst sinful people. Can you imagine the weight of that on the soul of Christ? That as we look around and we don't even perceive the true depravity of our hearts, he knows them in full. That that was the true extent of the filth that he would find himself in. Yes, he would dwell among us, but he would not partake in our sin. But he would continue to be that perfect, spotless lamb of God. So we see him exchange the glory and perfections of heaven for a manger. Now this perhaps is the single greatest thing that I... Luke chapter 2 verse 7 adds in this. Um, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Now, perhaps you think I read a little bit too much into this, but as I look at this passage, I'm reminded that each and every infant has a need. And if they were not wrapped in swaddling clothes, can you imagine this for just a moment? That if Christ had not been wrapped in swaddling clothes, then the hay in that manger would have perhaps scuffed his skin. But he would have, he would have also been cold. He could have very likely scratched his own face because we look at this and we assume that Jesus came and he was this infant that had no need. All of you know better than that. Every single infant, the the Christ that we find here is not so different from the infant that you would have. Aside from his sinless perfection, he still had need. He still would get cold or hot. He would be in need of food and water. And for him to make known those things, he would cry. 
Can you imagine this? We look at this and we assume, we, we, we place Jesus in this position as he is the incarnate God and we look at him and say, well, of course Jesus never cried. Did he actually have need? Of course he had need. That's the, the incredibleness of this statement. The omnipotent God knows need. Uh, A.W. Tozer said this. I'm not normally a huge Tozer, but a brilliant statement. And, and it is, um, need is a creature word. The creator knows nothing of it. And I have to slightly disagree. Yes, need is a creature word. But God does know it because he allowed himself to condescend to know what need is. Now, did he know it in his infinite wisdom? Yes. But there is a difference, at least in the perspective of pursuing our great and faithful high priest to speak to one who actually experienced need. Friends, when you come to the Christ of Christmas, do not, do, not rid, do not rule this out. Do not make it something that it is not. He came as a human, and by that he had necessity. We see this all throughout his life. We see him as he's walking and, and walking through Samaria, and particularly in John chapter 4, he sits down wearied as he was from his journey, tired, tired. And he asked him, will you give me some water? He thirsts. And then not to even mention the statement from the cross where he actually says, I thirst. The longing, the strong desire amidst a great deal of suffering to saying, I need something to drink. And he is met with vinegar. The needs that he had. Friends, yes, it is true that the true creator has absolutely nothing that he needs for him to be self-sustaining. But friends, when Christ came incarnate, he knew need and he knew it well. He knew it from the time of an infant, from the time of his death, when he would lay down his life for for ours. And so the omnipotent God knows need. He was swaddled. He was, as an infant, protected, cared for, loved, made sure that he would be able to survive that night. And so the omnipotent God knows need. This is the condescension. I mean, just, just this one alone. I mean, the rest can go. But when you consider this particular point, that the God of creation, the God who has provided absolutely everything necessary for us to live, that he would then know the need that we have for each and everything that must be provided for us to simply make it through a day. He knew those and knew those well. This is true condescension. If we only had this truth, we can look at it and be astounded and amazed that the God of creation would would come in and subject himself to these things. This is the true level of condescension, that the omnipotent God, the one who knows everything, would have to learn. Have you considered? Scripture makes it abundantly clear that Jesus grew in measure, in stature, and, and in knowledge of God. He grew in those things. He actually had to learn. All of these things, he allowed himself to be subject to so that he could redeem all of humanity, each and every part of us. And so the omnipotent God knows need. This is the true level of condescension. Now, lastly, this is interesting. Luke chapter 2, all the way down in verse 21. The righteous lawgiver, the one who gives the law, the one who is absolutely authoritative over it. He is the just and righteous judge. He is the one who gives the law. He is the one who is ultimately um, the one we will be accountable to for the law. In verse 21, it says this, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, let me lay this out for you really quickly. Uh, circumcision was, in this particular circumstance, was in regard to being under the law. It was the thing that marked them that said, hey, I'm going to be under the authority of the Jewish law. Now, consider this. 
The one who has absolute authority over the law is subjecting himself to it. He is being obedient to it. He is ordained from the foundation of the world that when he became incarnate, that Joseph and Mary would take him to the temple, that he would be circumcised, that he would be named, that he would be subject to the law. Why? Why would he, as the only true righteous one, subject himself to the law of God? It was necessary for our salvation. Now this leads us into our next point, but let's pause for a minute and consider just this one. When Jesus approaches John the Baptist to be baptized, John the Baptist is freaking out, for lack of better terms, because he's essentially saying, I'm, no, you're not, I'm not baptizing you, you're baptizing me. And Jesus responds, no, you're going to baptize me, and this is to fulfill all righteousness. There's a term, we call it active obedience, that throughout the life of Christ, this started at eight days that throughout the life of Christ, he would fulfill each and every righteous requirement of the law so that when he would die in our stead, that righteousness could be credited to our account. This started at eight days. Was it necessary for him to subject himself to the law? No, it was not. He, He is righteous altogether. And he subjects himself to the law of God simply so that he might grant that complete and full righteousness to us. His condescension is marked by him leaving the throne of heaven, becoming incarnate, knowing need, ultimately that he might fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Now, as we go just a little bit further, you'll find in Philippians chapter 2, that's in regard to his condescension. So we stop, we consider, hey, he's condescended to man, he's come, he's dwelling among us, he's fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. But so how does all of this uh, conclude? Because when we look at this truth, this is only one part of our salvation. It's necessary for him to come. It's necessary for him, for him to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, but there is something else that is necessary. If he gives us his righteousness and we still have guilt on us, then friends, we can have all the righteousness we so desire because God is a just and righteous judge and he will condemn justly sin. So what do we have then? We have what we, would, what we would call the humiliation of Christ. So we have his condescension, his incarnation. And in Philippians chapter 2, we find this in verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that everything we've looked at, his condescension culminates in this one truth, that he will die in our stead. And I would point out to you this passage in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. It says this, and verse 4 gives gives it a little bit of light as well. So this whole passage in Hebrews chapter 10 is making reference to sacrifices. And how all the sacrifices would take place in Levitical law and how they can be fulfilled. And ultimately it culminates in verse 4. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of goats bulls and goats, to take away sin. That essentially he looks at them and says, everything that you have done in the Levitical priesthood ultimately amounts to nothing except for the fact that it is a shadow and a type making reference to the one that will come that will actually save. And it goes into verse five and says this, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. What was the purpose of the condescension? What was the purpose of his coming? Why is it that he came to dwell among us? Why is it that he came subject to the law? It was God preparing for him a body that he might die in our place. Do not misunderstand. If you were to look at the condescension of Christ, if you were to look at the manger, if we come this morning, we're celebrating the incarnation free from the crucifixion, we're doing it wrong. 
It is impossible for us to look at the incarnation and not in light of that celebrate the cross of Christ because the incarnation is God fulfilling his promise that he would prepare a body for one who is actually able to save. And so as we come and we look at Philippians chapter 2, we see this kind of culmination coming about that in being found in human form, the body prepared for him, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now the beauty of this is what we find in verse 9. The death on the cross will ultimately lead to what we call the exaltation of Christ. It says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The beauty of this is that in his condescension, in his humiliation, it will ultimately come about that he will be the name on every single soul's lips. And I am incredibly, I mean this, every single soul. That means those today that reject him, there will be a moment in the future where their knee will hit the ground to look at the great Christ of Christmas. They will bow before him. They will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we have the grand privilege of doing this now and receiving for that faith the eternal reward of knowing Christ throughout the coming ages. But I will make it clear that those who do it on that great day when he arrives, the door is closed. When he comes on that great day and he professes, you will say, I am Lord. That the door at that point is closed. And so my hope for you this morning is that you would gladly bow your knee before the Father, bow your knee before the condescended, humiliated yet exalted Christ and say, you are Lord. And so let me give you a couple of things considering his death and exaltation. I got excited in in that passage, sorry. His body was prepared with the purpose, and we just saw that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Now listen to this in verse 2. He obediently fulfilled the purpose and redeemed for himself a people. So this is the beauty of this. This actual sacrifice actually did redeem for himself a people. Now this last part is his name will be praised and adored. And I want to stop right there because I want to break this down because for us to look at this passage free from its motivation, I think we're going to find ourselves to be a little foolish. So when we consider his condescension, when we consider his humiliation and ultimately his exaltation, what sparked each and everything that we find here. Because when we look at this, uh, you know, we, we automatically assume, well, yes, God did it. Why? Does anybody ever do that? I was the really annoying kid in third grade that my teacher like almost kicked out of class because anything she said was immediately met with why. I've got to know why. And unfortunately, my mother was right down the, that, that's, that's not important. Um, and so, I mean, I just, I just was, was constantly, I could not help but ask this question because I need to know the source of all of these things. Because everything does actually have a source. Everything does flow from somewhere. And even if we want to take that all the way back to God's creation in Genesis 1, still there is absolutely some chain of events that leads us here. And so when we look at this passage and we consider the fact that Christ actually did condescend to man, I have to ask the question, why? Why, is it something that we did? How did it, how did this, I mean, was he obligated? Have you ever stopped to consider, was he obligated to come? Was it, was it something out of sheer necessity that the father looks at the son and says, you will go? Did he have the, the authority within the, tri, within the Trinity to do so? Absolutely. Why did he come? And it does go back to this very clear statement completely from unmerited favor, love. 
And the, and the hope is, and, I, and this is the point that's ultimately been driving, hopefully, us forward the last couple of weeks, is because I want you to taste in the condescension of Christ the love of God. Because we look at it and we almost assume it's, it's, it's obliged of him. He had to do this. He did not have to do anything. He does whatever he wants of his own free will and accord. He has an actual freedom in his will. Nothing influences him except for him. And so when he said, I'm going to come, I'm going to dwell among them, I'm going to be born in a manger, I'm going to make clear to them how low I will actually go to rescue and redeem them. He is essentially looking at all of those he would rescue and redeem and saying, look at the great love I have for you. I will go to the lowest point necessary to rescue and redeem you. Have you ever considered that? Love goes a great, a great deal. It, it will go to whatever extent necessary to make sure it accomplishes the purpose that it has for the one whom he has that love set on it. Um, Beth and I, when we first got married, I haven't told her I'm telling this story. Um, Beth and I, when we first got married, we went on a camping trip and uh, we went uh, kayaking. Um, which is something we love to do. Um, and the night before, there was this horrid rainstorm, which we're all very familiar with right now. Um, this terrible rainstorm that comes through, and uh, it's a really simple river. You simply just get on and you just kind of float. But um, that night, because the rain was so bad, a tree had fallen over. And a tree falls over and it is, it's collapsed into the river and there's really only one way around it, but I was too slow to navigate to that point. And so I essentially had to go through the tree Canoes don't fare well against trees. And um, as we're doing that, I have decent experience with canoeing and kayaking. I've done some whitewater rafting. There's one rule, don't put your feet down. Well, as we go through, Beth and I both tip over and uh, Beth gets trapped in the tree. And, and immediately I'm thinking to myself, okay, um, her foot is caught. Um, the only way out is for someone to remove her foot. I'm downstream already. And so I realized the only way for her to get free is for me to swim back upstream. It wasn't that strong of a stream. It's not that impressive. And, 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 and get her out. Because, I mean, you can only stay trapped for so long. And so I swim upstream knowing that, like, I'm about to swim into a tree. I may make it out. I may not. But that's okay because my wife's there and I've only been married for two months. And I'd rather not be a widower that early. And I swim upstream and I, and I free her. And all of a sudden I find myself trapped because I now can't get out. It was a horrifying experience. And I, I mean, going in, I knew that this, these were major options. Like I could actually get trapped in this tree. The only reason I did that, it wasn't because I was obliged to. It was because I had love for her. In the exact same way, to a far greater extent that frankly, no illustration will suffice. The only motivation for the son coming was because he loved you and longed to rescue you from your sin. What we find in Matthew 121, you call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. That is the motivation of his incarnation, his coming, his condescension, his sole purpose was to rescue and redeem you. That is why it is such, it is, it is such a fatal error to look at, the, at Christ coming, the incarnation without looking to the cross because we look at essentially the start of something but we never look at its end. And I want you to understand at the incarnation when he came to dwell among us. We can rest very comfortably that the one who came to dwell among us that died in our stead is the one who actually accomplished the purpose that he set out for. He actually did rescue his people. And my friends, this morning, my hope is that you are amidst those people, that you have looked at this name that is above every single name and professed that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, lastly, I would like to give you just a couple of responses to each and every one of these things because I think they're incredibly important. What then are we to do with all this information? And I'm talking about like three weeks of information. How are we to respond? 
Now, I've confessed to you that we've got a couple of different ways that we deal with responses. We deal with it in faithfulness. Do we need to be faithful to be obedient to something? Do we need to grow in steadfast love? Or do we need to grow in knowledge of God? The whole purpose of these three weeks has been to do one thing and one thing only, to grow you in your affections for Christ. Because I'm convinced if you grow in affection, you will grow in faithfulness. And so the first thing that I would encourage you to do is do as Mary did. Treasure up all these things in your heart. Do not allow them to escape you, but instead ponder them. Consider the fact that the great God, the sovereign of creation who dwelt in perfect harmony with the Father in the splendor of heaven would condescend, be born in a manger that ultimately he might fulfill the righteous requirements of the law so that those righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, that you might bow humbly before that manger in light of the cross. Adore him. Let him be the supreme object of your love. Treasure these things. Lastly, we do as the shepherds do. We worship the Father. Sometimes I got in trouble in preaching class multiple times for this because they kept on telling me, if you don't have something for your people to do after a sermon, you probably have not preached a good sermon. Friends, if at the end of a sermon you worship Jesus more, I'm really thrilled with that. If your hands don't have something to do, I'm okay. What I long for is to see hearts that adore Christ because I'm convinced that if we do that, we will be obedient to anything and everything that he asks us to do. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would first and foremost treasure these great things in your heart throughout not only the Christmas seasons that are here now and the ones that will come, but ultimately throughout the entirety of your life that your heart will have your great affection on Christ and on Christ alone and that because of your growing affection for him that you might be faithful to each and everything that he commands first and foremost of his praise and worship for to that forever be on your tongues. Let's pray together. Father, we... Um, are grateful for the privilege you give us to come and to worship you this morning, to look at your word, to celebrate the beauty of the gospel. Lord, even looking at that idea of your condescension when you would come to dwell among us, when you would exchange the glory of heaven for um, a manger that you, the omnipotent God, would come and know need. Lord, thank you for being our faithful high priest. Thank you for coming and knowing the needs that we have, even allowing yourself to, to know hunger, to know thirst, to be tempted and tried, but, but succeeding each and every time, Lord, that we might go to you and, and, and plead, Lord, will you help me? And you know it intimately. And so, Father, as we are here this morning, as we leave this place to celebrate the Christ of Christmas, Lord, may we be faithful to, um, to, pro- to profess Christ. Lord, may we not forget the cross in light of the manger, but in light of the manger, meditate on the beauties of the cross. And so, Father, we are grateful. We are grateful. So, Father, I ask you this morning, for those of us in this room that know you, Lord, stir our affections to love you more. And, Lord, for those who don't, perhaps they have been introduced to the Christ of Christmas through your word. And, Lord, if that be the case, Lord, may they be quick to respond, to to, to love Christ, to profess him as Lord now. Lord, for soon the days will come to an end. And their knee will bow because the sovereign king will come and put them on their knees. And so, Father, we are grateful once again for the privilege of worshiping you this morning. It is in the precious name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen.